and yeah, we didn't know anything. Like 20, 30 years ago, kakapo were extinct in the 1980s, effectively extinct because there's only male kakapo left. There's 17 male kakapo known about in Fjordland, no females. So as far as that, in the 1970s, Kakapo were thought to be functionally extinct, that was it. And then on Stewart Island, a, a population of females, a population including some females was found. So that was, you know, otherwise Kakapo would have been extinct. Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Today's episode is about conservation in New Zealand. We're going to talk to our producer, Taylor, who spent the summer in New Zealand. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. So, why don't you tell us about your time in New Zealand? Sure. First, when someone thinks of New Zealand, they're going to think of a lot of green, a lot of water, plenty of rolling hills and majestic landscapes. They think of those amazing vistas in Lord of the Rings and the exotic dark bush that is New Zealand jungle. This is exactly what I thought before I got there. I spent a few months there this year during our summer, their winter working on a research project for the New Zealand Fish and Game Department and doctoral student Jen Shepard. What Jen and Fish and Game were trying to find out was the level of productivity of non-native duck species in certain habitats. I hiked around both of the big islands of New Zealand with her team trying to find where these North American mallards were resting, feeding, and nesting. But why New Zealand? Why is New Zealand so special? You know, New Zealand is really special. It is one of Conservation International's biodiversity hotspots, which means that there are only a few places on the planet that have such high levels of different species of plants and animals that cannot be found anywhere else. And they're quite unique. The amount of different species is called biodiversity. And when they are only found in a certain place, they are considered endemic to that area. The problem is, is that when these endemic species that can't be found anywhere else are threatened with development, or in the case of New Zealand, high levels of agriculture and invasive species. Do you mind explaining what invasive species are a little bit better? Sure, non-native invasive species are exactly the opposite of native and endemic. They come from somewhere else. The danger occurs when native wildlife meets non-native wildlife. In many cases, the non-native species will outcompete the natives for resources, or it'll just plain eat the native species. This is such a pervasive threat globally that the Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson labels invasive species as one of the five biggest threats to biodiversity, second behind only habitat destruction. As a series of remote islands, New Zealand is especially vulnerable to all these threats. Before the Maori, a Polynesian people, got to the island seven, eight hundred years ago, or before Captain James Cook got there in the mid-1700s, there had never been a rat there, or any land mammal for that matter. Now there are plants and animals from every continent, and specifically from Europe and North America. Many of these were brought over purposely for a variety of reasons. It's at the point now that they even have wild American deer, and their rivers are flowing with North Pacific salmon. The amount of invasives is so high that unless you search out a reserve, you are unlikely to find a native New Zealand animal and very few plant species when just driving around. So now we're going to check in with Zane Moss and Paul Van Klink from the New Zealand Fishing Game, and later we'll talk to Dr. Andrew Digby with the Department of Conservation to have them describe the conservation efforts that Taylor was talking about. But just a couple of quick disclaimers first. 
These interviews were conducted in busy offices, so you may hear some background noise like a heater kicking on or people walking in and out. Also, the first people we talk to have thick accents and Kiwiisms, so we may need to interrupt to interpret a little bit. While I was there, I asked Zane and Paul a series of questions. First being, is the amount of habitat degradation actually as high as I had noticed? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and I guess Kiwis, and it's probably no different anywhere else in the world, are relatively ignorant about the values of wetlands. Um, we cleared the bush and drained as many wetlands as we could yeah. for agricultural um, productivity and, and the intensification of agriculture. And there's still attempts to do that in some parts of, of the province and the country. And I'm sure that's true of most countries to yeah. some degree. Um, and it's interesting when you look at forest clearance from um, you know, third world type countries and we all sort of cast our scorn and values on, on them when we've all done it ourselves and that's right. what's led so to our so own. Important. Yeah, yeah, hundreds or, or yeah, tens of years ago. And um, yeah, these guys are trying to get up to a more productivity by clearing this stuff. But, and we've done the same. But yeah, there is, and, and there's so little, <clears throat> and Southland's probably one of the worst regions, there's so little habitat left on the Southland Plains for a whole host of species mm -hmm. because of that drainage. That, but there is an opportunity there to recreate some of that, which is, which is good. It's hard to find a country that doesn't have some sort of history of destruction. I mean, especially on islands. One of the guys that works with Zane, named Paul Van Klink, is going to explain this a little bit further for us. Hey, going back to that point about conservation land, so out of that 15% of New Zealand that's conservation land, I think it's something like 96% of it's actually upland conservation mm. land, so it's in the Alps. So only 4% of that 15% of that percentage is actually yeah. in lowland habitats. It's the lowland habitats we're talking about, like Southland, all this, the oh, plains. Really? So only 4% of lowland habitats are protected out of all the conservation land. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, as that you know, wetlands and, yeah, that and as you know, out of lowland habitats, that's where actually the richest biodiversity mm -hmm. values are. Not yeah. up in the ice fields, up in the southern Alps. <laughs> right, right, right. And right, so, right. so they are really, it's really important. Um, any conservation down in the lowland areas is, is actually crucial. Mm -hmm. so. Along with their history of habitat destruction, New Zealand has a history of introducing inappropriate species. They introduced these plants and animals for a variety of reasons, for hunting, for agriculture, uh, because they just wanted house cats around them. So for example, before the Europeans got there, there had never been a land mammal. There had never been hooved animals tick every box there. Yeah, yeah. And we introduced rabbits <clears throat> for food initially. Um, and then it's like the, the you know, old lady who swallowed a fly, really. Um, we introduced rabbits for food, and then there was too many rabbits for the for the sheep. So we introduced various predators to control the rabbits, and, and yeah, it's just escalated from, just there. So from there. Yeah. There was discussions about... there was um, New Zealand's got a really interesting history of introducing inappropriate species, but... Um, we introduced six or seven species of deer, which I'm thankful for because they're awesome to hunt. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, just about um, yeah, sustains my family. But um, there was serious consideration about introducing cougars to try and reduce the numbers of deer. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. They did seriously talk about it. 
No yep. kidding. Mm. Mm. They introduced um, kangaroos. They introduced all sorts of random things. Mm. But yeah, they seriously talked about introducing cougars at one stage to try and reduce the numbers of deer. There was this, this all happened in a very short time. This is the crazy thing about New Zealand. The Polynesians only got there about 700, 800 years ago. We call them the Maoris. And then in the mid-1700s is when Captain James Cook got there. About 300 years after Columbus got to the New World. So New Zealand's been through a huge number of changes in the short sort of last even in the last 150 years. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the Maori showed up 800 years ago, Mm, right? mm, Yeah. And then that is just such a compact Mm. timeline compared to so many other places on the planet. Pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, to get the people there first, Mm. 800 years ago, and then to introduce potentially... Cougars. Yeah, yeah. Mountain lions. Yeah, yeah but might have changed high country farming. <laughs> a little bit. Some of the merinos wouldn't have been very happy about it. So a merino is actually a type of sheep. New Zealand obviously has a history of habitat destruction and biodiversity loss. But fishing game has developed an innovative strategy to deal with some of these issues. I guess in North America, <clears throat> there's a lot of money invested in waterfowl hunting and so much participation and and, uh, as a consequence there's comparatively a lot of money available for research. New Zealand has a strong um, history of waterfowl hunting but because we've got relatively few people you know there's there's some tens of thousands that go waterfowl hunting but not millions Um, and the only money we have available is from the sale of hunting licenses we're not government funded at all and there's no sort of regional taxes on you know sale of ammunition or firearms or anything else um, that contributes so the only money we have is from people buying licenses so we don't have a lot of money they've created this waterfowl hunting program where they're hunting invasive ducks and the money they receive from these hunting licenses goes to pay for the research that they're doing on these wetlands and, but this research is kind of the first we've done at this level, looking at productivity really, identifying what's driving um, the productivity of our populations um, to get a better understanding of, of how we can maintain the resource for hunters, how we can improve it. Is predator control the big thing or predation of nests or hens on nests or of ducklings or is it the habitat that they're breeding in or is it their feeding habitat? All the different variables that could influence their productivity. Um, this study will hopefully allow um, Jen through her PhD to build a model that will um, inform us around all of those parameters. It's rather optimistic, right. to be honest. We're right. trying to um, capture absolutely everything yeah. in one study, which is optimistic. We just have to um, hope that we don't miss on everything as well. Right, you know, right, the, right. the risk is going holistically that you could have answered several smaller questions really precisely. Uh, but going holistically, you know, whether we've got enough enough detail to answer all of those. Well, it's not a wild swing, but still, right. yeah, yeah. Um, no, and it's looking good. It's going well so far, for sure. Um. So this is the paradox of managing a non-native species. What we've been taught in the United States is to eradicate non-native species. It's the best management practice for them. But they're using this program to create more habitat that can support native species. We certainly create quite a lot of wetland habitat. They're seen as duck ponds locally, um, 
but the reality is they, they soon develop their own wetlands, wetland values anyway. Um, the climate we're in down here allows us to, to basically dam rainwater quite easily without yeah. much of a catchment at all. Yeah. Most of our pastures are drained with what are called tile drains, um, so there's a lot of drainage to support agriculture here. And by breaking up those tile drains and putting a small retaining wall, um, you lift water up above the farmland and create a, a wetland of sorts. Initially, it's just a dry, it's just a pond um, without much habitat value as such. But with some native planting and so on, they regenerate values very quickly. Some of these freshwater wetland ecosystem services that he's talking about are flood storage, habitat, pollutant removal, recreation maybe some commercial products. And if you look at a Google Earth image of Southland, which we've got with some poor student had to go through a grid search and identify all the open water <laughs> wetlands uh, as a layer, there's thousands literally of ponds that have yeah. been created across Southland for waterfowl hunting. This is what I was working in. There are literally thousands of these little ponds all throughout the back country of New Zealand. And, and the general public probably don't appreciate that, they have um, wetland values associated with them. Um, they have the typical wetland values of capturing overland flow and sediment and nutrient attenuation, all that, and flood flow attenuation, um, as well as being utilised by native species as well. We've got various native duck species, but there's other native species that will use them too. Um, and especially where they're linked in other catchments where there's some of those species. Um, right, there's that spillover effect. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. The whole, you know, wildlife corridor type thing. A wildlife corridor is exactly what you think it is. It's a link between wildlife habitats that are uh, generally native vegetation of the same kind. And it's for the purpose of maintaining that genetic diversity so that you don't get these isolated populations. If it's linked close enough to, to streams and drains with some riparian vegetation, you know, there's, there's bitterns and fern right. birds and marsh crakes and all sorts of things that utilise them that the general public hardly even know what these birds are, to be honest, right. let alone the, the, the sparse habitat that's available for them. So They've created these wetlands for their waterfowl hunting program, but in doing so, they've laid the foundation for the native species to re-establish their populations. And it's duck hunting that underpins that, because a farmer won't see the value in, you can create a wetland and all these native birds will like it. They're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Generally, some of them do, but most of them don't. Whereas if you say, look, we can create this, this awesome duck pond um, that will provide you hunting opportunities, so they can get their head around that, their, their friends or family will be involved in waterfowl hunting. And they'll actually eventually become interested in, oh look, these stilts are using it, and some black swan flew in, and, and oh, I saw some, what are these little birds, and, you know, and I heard some birds, you know, marsh crake or fern birds or something else. And over time their values change. And you see that, it's the same in North America, you know, yeah. you see that across the world. Waterfowl hunting is the driver for some interest in wetlands, right. that then over time they become informed with their observations. Their values change. And they're just as likely to put more ponds in. They don't actually hunt that one. Put another duck pond in, don't actually hunt it. But I've done lots of native planting around it, and yeah. I've found that it's colonised by all these other bird species, okay. and their interests change. And that happens a lot. Even later in life for farmers, quite a lot of farmers where it's ripped here in Boston, it's all about productivity <laughs> and, and building my empire and, and um, 
yeah, trying to decrease their debt or buy more holdings or whatever. And then at some stage, I don't know if it's a testosterone lag or something, but their values change and they start looking around and saying, well, look, what, what have I really got? And, oh, actually, I'm starting to value that bit of bush that my dad actually inadvertently fenced. Now I want to put a covenant around it and prevent that being clear because I actually value that now. And, oh, I like that wetland and actually can I do more of them? So yeah. we see that a lot in 50 to 60-year-old farmers as well, that they get involved and their interests change. You know, their son might be doing more of the farm work and they've got more spare time to actually take a breath and look around. So. Right. Yeah, so yeah, getting young kids involved is certainly so important. But... Zane's talking about a value system that's been changing for a while now, both in New Zealand and internationally. One of the things that I've been seeing in New Zealand and elsewhere are the implications of these changing values. Some researchers are saying that we are in the midst of the sixth great extinction on the planet, and that extinction and biodiversity loss is one of the nine great environmental threats. But this changing of values is showing up in the recovery of the California condor in the United States, the giant panda in China, and a few of the species in New Zealand. Now we're gonna to talk to Dr. Andrew Digby, who is a biologist with the Department of Conservation. He works on the programs for two of these critically endangered species, the kakapo and the takahe. A takahe is a flightless bird that looks kind of like a blue chicken and a kakapo is a green, ground-dwelling, flightless parrot that is about the size of a basketball. I'm the scientist on the takahe and kakapo programs. They're both critically endangered bird species. Um, okay. There's about a, there's 125 kakapo left and about 300 takahe. So they're, they're both yeah, very low numbers. So let's repeat that. There are only 125 kakapo and 300 takahe left. They got down to about 50 and um, 51 in the mid-90s. So that was the start of our, our main part of this recovery program. So since then, the numbers are going in the right direction. They're increasing, um, but it's slow, slow gains. So I'm responsible for providing science advice and science analysis and just collaborating with a whole range of experts um, for both of those programs. And, so we have a we have a, a team of up to around about sort of eighteen people and um, expands sort of twenty five thirty or so in the summer when we have breeding seasons. And on the ground work for Kakapo is on three main islands where we have Kakapo. So one is Fenuaho, which is codfish island, um, off Stewart Island. And then we have another island in Fiordland, Dusky Sound, and another one up near Auckland. Gotcha. And Takahe, the main site, the main wild site for Takahe is the Murchison Mountains, which is near Tiano. So and pretty ruggedest mountainous terrain over there. And that's actually where they were rediscovered. The, I don't know, the story of Take is kind of weird. They're the only bird I know of in the world that's been declared extinct twice. So they're thought to be extinct around about the middle of the 19th century, about 1850s, they're thought to be extinct. There's only three more seen for the rest of that century, so one or two. And then by 1898, they said, that's it, they're definitely extinct now. And no one saw them for 50 years until there was an Invercargill doctor actually called Jeffrey Orbell who used to live here he was kind of obsessed that they maybe still be around and he used to go up into Fiordland into the mountains and look for them and then yeah in 1948 he rediscovered a population of them and they're still there and that's where our main population is but they've been hanging on by a thread for the last 50 years or so and we're trying to keep them going there. So not only were the Takahe declared extinct twice if Dr. Orbell hadn't found this population in 1948 this species would have definitely been extinct by now. 
So wow. that, that's like the only wild population. What we have done since then has been breeding them in captivity and releasing them onto islands around New Zealand. So the sort of the numbers are building up because we have what we call these secure sites. So islands around the country where they're safe from predators, predator-free islands, and just to get the numbers up. Yeah, so New Zealand, I guess by necessity, has become pretty good at conservation and innovation and in coming up with novel ways of trying to tackle some of these problems. And yeah, New Zealand's probably, I guess, the world leader in eradicating pests from islands. Um, and yeah, that's something Doc has now done 30 plus islands. I don't I can't remember the exact numbers, but over 30 islands eradicated them. And the biggest one is Campbell Island. Um, which is in the South Antarctic, and that, that was eradicating rats from there. And that's, it's central to a lot of Doc's work. If it wasn't for these pest-free islands, then a lot of more species would be extinct now. Just so gone. species like Kakapo, for example, they'd be extinct if it wasn't for these predator-free islands. So Fenuaho, where we have our main population down here, um, the, uh, possums were eradicated from there in the 1980s, and then rats in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm. Um, and yeah, if both of those were there, then the Kakapo population would really probably be extinct. They've eradicated these invasives from the actual islands, but they've also established these pest-free areas on the mainland. They're so-called mainland islands or, or sanctuaries, and there's actually two types. There's one, there's, I guess there's three ways you can keep um, pests out, and I guess the whole principle is native, most native animals uh, and those introduced pests just cannot live together. You have to separate those two. Um, most native birds, or a lot of native birds, really, really suffer and will become extinct if they're exposed to large numbers of those mammalian predators. So there's three ways of doing it. One is you put the native mammals on an offshore island where they're surrounded by water, or you put them in a mainland island with a fence around it, or you put them in another type of mainland island which doesn't have a fence but has a network of traps. So it's basically like rings and rings of traps to stop so many mainland predators getting mm. into the middle. So sort of three boundaries, basically, either water or fence or traps. Concentric rings of traps. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And it's sort of quite a bit of work has been going on about what's the best way to do that. And, I mean, fences, there's quite a lot of fence sanctuaries around in New Zealand. Um, so building these pest-proof fences, and I don't know if you've been to any places like Wellington or Dunedin, and you can you can see them. They're just in the cities or just right next to the cities, and they're great. They're brilliant for, um, for brilliant for advocacy as much as perhaps anything because they're in the cities, right next to the city. I used to work in one in Wellington, and it's it's right in within the boundaries of the city, but it's a completely native habitat, and it's possible because of this fence. And it means that everyone who goes to the city and all the locals can get to see what native New Zealand. Sh um, flora and fauna should really look like because most people, and as you've seen from the Waikato, never get to experience that. They don't get to experience what it's like. And even if you go to some places like in Fiordland or up in the mountains in the North Island, you go into a forest and it can be silent. There's virtually no bird life in some of those forests because of the predators. That's exactly what I found. Hiking around New Zealand, or what they call tramping, it's hard to find native habitat. When you do find reserves with native bush, they're usually pretty quiet unless they have dedicated pest control. It is, and if you go to areas where there's pest control, you really notice the difference. I was on a tramp in Fiordland last, um, about six months ago, and I went on two tramps in one day. One, I went up a valley where there was pest control, another one, I went up a valley where there was no pest control, and the amount of difference in bird life between those two valleys was, was quite amazing. So it really does make <laughs> a big difference, but it's, it's a huge effort, and that's the, I guess that's the problem with all of this is, you know, how this has got to go on forever, um, unless you can eradicate those pests.
they've used these innovative strategies and technology to remove invasive pests. But now that you're faced with this loss in a forest, how do you get the native birds like the kakapo and the takahe to reestablish? Kakapo probably is the one program in New Zealand which has more of the gadgets and more of the technology than probably any other. Um, so we have a lot of technology to monitor kakapo. So we all our kakapo have transmitters on, every single one. Um, so, and we use that, well, so we use it just like regular telemetry to find the birds. Radio telemetry is a pretty standard method for locating wildlife. Once an animal is captured, a transmitter is attached to the animal, either externally or, in the kakapo's case, surgically implanted under their skin. Then they are released into the wild, and the researcher uses an antenna, sometimes called a yagi, to locate the animal in the future. The transmitter gives off a regular frequency that appears as a beeping noise in the researcher's headphones. As the beep gets louder, you know you're getting closer to the animal. While this method of searching for wildlife is standard, Dr. Digby is going to explain how transmitters for a critically endangered bird are unique. We also have these are smart transmitters too, so they, they um, monitor activity of the birds too. So we can use that monitor activity to first of all tell if a bird dead, is dead or not, so it makes a different pulse if the bird dies, to tell if it's stopped moving more, which means that it could either be ill or it could be a female who's incubating, so okay. we use that as well. Um, and these transmitters also can monitor mating too. So we have um, actually receivers and, and transmitters actually in the, in the transmitters. So what happens in kakapo when they breed, which normally happens about every two or three years or so in the, in the summer, um, if a male uh, mates with a female, we can basically know that from the transmitters. And what happens is that basically the, when the male mates, he basically jiggles around a lot and it jiggles the mercury strips inside the transmitter. When that jiggles for a certain amount of activity for a certain amount of time, it switches on the receiver, which then detects what other transmitters are nearby. So it can detect if the female's transmitter is nearby. So then what we get is an, an output which tells us, okay, this male had this level of mating activity for this amount of time and he was mating with this female. We normally get that. That's an as coded as a pulse in the transmitter. So from our Yegi, we can actually listen to that pulse and get that information. And that really, really helped our breeding that last year because we, we want to know which male mates with which, which female because in breeding is a real big problem in kakapo. And if we get a male mating with his sister, then we want to make sure we can go along and either do something like artificial insemination to, to sort of oh, supersede wow. that mating. Also then, we know that she's mated, so we can look out for her, okay, we know she's going to be nesting soon, we want to go and find her nest, We want to because we, the nest um, monitoring and the, it's extremely intensive and, and kakapo. We actually, we have, we have traditionally had monitors at every nest, so we have a tent site, a campsite at every single nest, we have a video camera on the nest, we have a little sensor which chimes and tells us when the females going, coming and going. So we want to know where nests are because we do a lot, quite a lot of manipulation with eggs and swapping mm. eggs out in incubation. So that's why that's really important that we get that information. Even with this new technology, there's still a lot of labor that goes into monitoring these populations. We're trying something else next year, which instead of us having to go up the hill and use our yegis to get that mating information, uh, we use satellite to beam it back. To, so we'll get an email in the morning, which hopefully will say, okay, last night this bird made it with this one and this one made it with this one. And so we then can then go up and start looking for those female nests. And, that's exciting. Or AI them if we want to. So that's sort of one of the reasons we use that for. Another reason we use these transmitters is 
for feeding them. So we actually supplementary feed our kakapo in the breeding season. We want the males to get nice and heavy so they can breed. We want the females to be just the right weight. Um, we find if they're too light, light, they don't breed. If they're too heavy, they produce too many males. So that's sex allocation theory. I don't know if you've come across that before. So, no kidding. And that was, Kakapo program was actually one of the first, I think it was the first sort of instance of that actually being found in the wild. And we actually manipulate, um, or, or the first instance of actually manipulating their weights to determine the sex ratio of, of individuals. Because we find if we keep uh, females between 1.5 and 1.7 kilograms, then we get more females than we do males. So anything bigger than that, and we tend to get more males than the cultures. They're supplementing food for the kakapo, but how does that work? How do they make sure that the ones they want to feed are the ones that are eating the food? We, we basically um, tune how much birds get fed. We have feeders, little smart hoppers, and they have a lid on which can lock, which is locked, and it will only open if it detects the transmitter of that particular bird. So we can program each, tra- each feeder to only open for one individual. And not for other Out ones. Out in the field. Yeah. So that helps us dictate who gets what food, but also helps from a disease point of view, because that means you don't have lots of birds all feeding from the same feed station. Right. You have one from each. And disease is, is always an issue, especially when you're supplementary feeding. So that's another way that we use these, this transmitter technology. I think this program is one of the first ones to actually try and manipulate that using the supplementary feeding. Um, so that's quite key. We, we basically had a sex bias. We had too many male kakapo, and now we've almost got it back to 50-50, which is pretty much where we want it. So. Not only did the research find that the kakapo mothers had to be a certain weight to produce more female chicks, they've used that data to supplementary feed the females to get the ratio of male and female kakapos back to 50-50. But as eggs tend to do, they hatch. We, we switch eggs, but we tend to switch eggs. Um, they have a, a period in their, uh, when they're chicks, when they can, the chicks can be quite vulnerable. And certainly doing eggs as well, we tend to switch them because some mothers are just not very good mothers and we'll tend to switch eggs because of that. Um, we also have started to incubate much more as well. So we actually, a lot of the time, we'll swap the eggs with a dummy egg, leave the female on a dummy and we incubate the eggs back in an incubator on the island in a hut because we found that's a more reliable way of getting chicks hatched than of leaving them to mothers. We then put the chicks back into the nests once the eggs are hatched or would have hatched. So what will happen is a female will leave her nest with a dummy egg in it, will nip in, pop a chick in there and, and she'll come back and she's got a chick and she'll just take to it straight away. Hmm. One thing we're actually trialling this year is having smart eggs too. We're having some eggs which are going to make a bit of noise and a bit of movement as well, so that will simulate a chick hatching. Because one thing we're a little bit worried about is she goes, she leaves a dummy egg, she comes back with a chick, and she hasn't had those cues that her egg is about to hatch, so she doesn't know. She doesn't know she's got to go out and get the right type of food or feed up because she's got to come and feed a chick. So we're starting to we're developing a smart egg which we're hoping to trial next year, which will then hopefully tell her, okay, you're likely to have a chick in a day or two days, sort of thing. So she'll then have that cue to, to come back. But how does that work? Wouldn't these birds catch on? So they're actually really resilient. Sometimes we've done it the other way and we'll actually have a female with a, a chick and then take the chick away and put an egg back in and she's fine. She'll go back and start incubating the egg. And, like, and sometimes she'll have one small chick and that chick's not doing very well so we want to take it away and put a bigger, healthier chick in which is maybe you know, a week older. And so she'll leave the nest with a small chick, come back and there's this bigger chick but 
they're fine and they're really resilient. So we can actually do quite a lot of that and that's each year that helps us to save a lot of chicks that would otherwise die. So we have some mothers, for example, which aren't very good at feeding their chicks. And they're quite messy and they just a lot of food just misses the chick's mouth and doesn't go in. So those mothers tend to have, we'll give them maybe a stronger chick, a healthier chick. And we could actually train the mothers like that as well. So sometimes we'll give the mother a, a bigger, healthier chick to train on, which is more used to feeding if it's one of our first ones. So there's a whole lot of manipulation stuff that, like that we do. In this type of hands-on research, the issue of imprinting comes up, where the chicks may see the scientists as parents. I mean, you have to be careful with it, because you don't know what sort of social implications it's having. Um, and an example is in the Takei program. For a long while, the Takei program hand-reared Takei chicks and reared them using puppets. So to stop imprinting, they actually had puppets and were feeding like this. And we've recently found that actually those chicks which were puppet-reared are about 30% less productive in terms of nesting than the other ones. And we didn't know that. So all the time this was going on, this was having this effect. And it was a bit of a time bomb because actually we're producing all these chicks which weren't very productive. And fortunately, that was stopped in about 2010. So we've now had five years where we're producing higher quality chicks again. And that sort of that effect is being pushed out of the system. But we could well be having those sort of effects on Kakapo if we're not careful. But we're kind of doing what we have to do now to try and get the numbers up. I mean, that's sort of those one of those things about conservation. You know, what are your priorities? Is it genetic diversity or is it just sheer numbers? And if you've got if you're down to 50 individuals, it always your focus always has to be getting numbers up. This is the process of science. It isn't just about finding the answers to the questions. It's about finding better questions. These researchers are prioritizing getting the population numbers up while also keeping an eye on the genetic quality. And I mean, numbers really, because they don't breed, you know, like this year we've had no breeding, so the numbers have actually gone down this year um, because we had some deaths. Um, 2011 we had six chicks and we had four deaths, so we got a net gain of two. Next year we're expecting, hopefully, if everything goes well, over 30 chicks, hopefully, which could be well our biggest breeding season ever. Our biggest breeding season was 33 chicks. Um, that was in 2009. So we've had, we had a big year in 2002, big one in 2009, and kind of hoping next year will be our next, our next big one. And so that's when it all goes crazy and we get really, really busy, but that's the years when we make the gains. And this breeding, you know, because they don't breed every year, because we can't breed them in captivity, you're just reliant on waiting for those big years to come along and then just trying to make sure on those years you get every chick out that you can, sort of thing, that the survival is really good amongst those chicks. So where did this program start? How far have they come in their research? And yeah, we didn't know anything. Like 20, 30 years ago, Kakapo were extinct in the 1980s, effectively extinct because there's only male Kakapo left. There's 17 male Kakapo known about in Fjordland, no females. So as far as that, in the 1970s, the Kakapo were thought to be functionally extinct, that was it. And then on Stewart Island, a, a population of females, a population including some females was found. So that was, you know, otherwise Kakapo would have been extinct. And, so, I mean, very little was known about Kakapo then. Um, and so it's just been building it up. And, not, you know, certainly people didn't know about captive breeding or whether you could keep them in captivity or how, how to hand rear. So all that stuff has been built up. And it, it, a lot of it is trial and error um, to some extent. You just sort of just trial things and see what work. But get in a lot of expertise as, as you go. And that's one of the things of these programs. We do actually put in a lot of expertise from people around the world, people who are expert nutritionists or geneticists. And so that's we really rely on that sort of information. This is another common theme of conservation science. Their program is a collaboration of people from many different fields. 
but I'm the scientist. That's what I love about my job is pulling all these people in. I mean, recently I've had conversations. We had a phone conference with vets. We had a human nutritionist because we're talking about vitamin D in kakapo. And so um, we talked to people who are parrot raisers. We have a, a person who who does a lot of parrot training involved in the program. And we have yeah a whole range of scientists just from all across completely different fields basically which is which is really great and because it's an i you know a bit of an iconic species people are keen to to help and contribute which is which is brilliant but we wanted to know where all this started for him where he found his passion i suppose i'm slightly i'm slightly different from some of the team i come from a bit of a different background i'm actually british i actually come from the uk i don't know if you can tell accents very well but i've been in new zealand about 10 years um i used to be an astronomer actually i was an astronomer before i came in new zealand i used to work in the states i used to work for nasa actually at one point um and my I, reason i went to do conservation is because i've always wanted to work with wildlife and be in conservation since i was a kid it was never really available to me as an as a kid growing up in the UK as a career path and so I went back to university and retrained and did a PhD in conservation and sort of got into it that way. A lot of other people um, I work with in DOC have always had that passion since an early age and if you grow up in New Zealand there's always that that conservation movement I guess and a lot of those conservation opportunities there's a lot of volunteer work that goes on and that's how most people I think get into conservation that's how I got into conservation is doing volunteer work and you volunteer on a program you see what's going on you have some amazing experiences see some amazing things work with some pretty dedicated people and think well yeah the money's rubbish but I want to do that for the rest of my life <laughs> and that's you know that's one thing people you don't work for a doc for money obviously and you, I mean, it's the same with conservation world over you do it because you love it and you, you care about what you do and protecting those species and I mean, that really comes out in the breeding season. So we have a breeding season next year, and the one that we had last year is people are working crazy, crazy hours, just like really, really putting themselves to the ring on the islands. People are working 18-hour days, just going up the hill in the middle of the night to just take one egg from one nest back down again. And, you know, I did like one night last year where I had three trips up and down the, up and down the hill in one night, so then you get woken up at four in the morning, oh, can you go and get this egg from this nest and bring it back down? And you're walking down the hill with this bucket with an egg in it with this critically endangered species of it. There's only 125 left in the world, you know, how can you don't trip over or <laughs> break it or something? And yeah, so that's when the sort of the dedication really shines through from everyone, from, you know, from the manager, Deirdre, right, you know, through to the rangers, everyone's sort of got that commitment, that real team goal. And if you've worked in conservation, you'll sort of have seen that sort of thing. And it's, it's great to be a part of it. With all these dedicated professionals working with these birds, how do you manage the pressure of handling a critically endangered species, a species that wouldn't be alive if not for your work? I mean, you kind of have to put that out of your mind when you're doing this work. Yeah. And you're crop, you know, when you're feeding a, a kakapo chick and crop feeding it yeah. or turning an egg or something, it's like, you know, I don't want to drop this, but you don't you try not to think about the fact of how precious and critical it is. I mean, you have that in the back of your mind, obviously, and you're very careful, but it, yeah. it could freak you out if you, if you put too much attention onto it. The pressure might be high, but the perception of this work tends to be one of doom and gloom, where we're headed towards disaster. Yeah, it's difficult, because, I mean, that's, you're, you're right, a lot of conservation messages have traditionally been all doom and gloom. Oh, no, this species is about to go extinct, and this one is about to go extinct, and, you know, we're doing all the wrong things, and we're not protecting them, what are we going to do about it? And, yeah, it has to be, you have to have those positive messages in there. You have to sort of show the people the success stories as well as the, as the negative side of it. True, and I mean, I guess you know, with the pro these programs that we're working on is they're both success stories. Those those species would have been extinct by rights; they should have been extinct, um, you know, by the end of the twentieth century. But they're not, and they're going the right way. And as long as we just keep going how we are, then they'll be okay. They'll be fine for the next you know thousand years or so. 
Um, but it's just obviously making sure that we keep that going and you can't, you can't afford to relax, I guess that's the, the issue. And they do cost a lot of money, these programmes are quite expensive and mm. we're always going to need that sort of money to keep them going. If we stop spending money on Kakapo and Takahe tomorrow, then in you know, 50 years' time they probably will be extinct. So it's critical that, you know, it's keeping that balance between that. We need to do something. Um, but hey, we're doing okay as long as we just keep doing this. We just mustn't forget it, that's the thing. We mustn't forget about why we're doing this and just trying to keep that message out to the public. I'd like to thank the National Park Service, the Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy. Producers for this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker. Interviewer for this episode is Taylor Parker. He's the one that got to go to New Zealand. Special thanks to Zane Moss, Paul Van Klink, and Dr. Andrew Digby for giving us their time and sharing all their great stories with us. This is a complex topic that we're just scratching the surface of. If you'd like to further engage in our conversation, go to our blog or visit our Facebook page to share your thoughts or post your questions. You can also see photos of New Zealand or the birds we've talked about on our website, Facebook, or Instagram at Pelicanus Radio. You can also find our past episodes on our website, on iTunes, or any podcast app that you use. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next time.